Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your word, and we're grateful for your Son and our salvation in him. We'd ask that you would make us take part seriously that we don't sometimes take seriously. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. Um, you ever run across a passage of scripture that <coughs> reminds you of how simple and amazing the Christian ethical view of the world is? Like James where it says, whence comes wars and fightings among you? Is it not your passions that wage war in your members? You go, oh, oh hmm, yeah, really? Pretty smart stuff in very short order. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. You, you know that there's brilliance, ethical brilliance in that. And we know that the basic task of Christianity is God's dealing with man in his sin. Christianity is, or there was an earlier way of dealing with man in his sin. It's sort of damn them all, right? That's, that's a set. That's set. That didn't have to be, you didn't have to come up with that. We were bad, we would be judged, we would be damned. Christianity is there to make sure, to make sure that there's a different answer, an answer that has a positive outcome, the forgiveness of God for our sins. And as we stop and think about our faith, we realize that the issue of wickedness, which I'd encourage you to use in a sentence more often, it's not mistakes, it's not brokenness, it's wicked. People being wicked to each other. It's amazing how much wickedness there is in the world. And it's not just the gay marriage. And it's not just the abortionists. They're bad. But the wickedness is standing all around us. The wickedness is in, you know, probably know, some interpersonal relationship where somebody can't Treat someone else like a Christian with love and with patience and kindness. So God, you could say this is a premise for the sermon. God's against sin. What's that? I think I've told that joke before. Calvin Coolidge going to church, the president, and his wife couldn't get him to talk about anything. She said, what was the message on? He said, Sin. And she wanted to get more out of him. Said, so, "Well, what did he say about sin?" He said he was against it. That's what God is. He's against it. He's got to deal with it. He either judge you or forgive you. So when you're looking at sin in your own life and the lives of your friends, and not those city folks who get involved in all sorts of grotesque perversions, but you know, good small town Moscow, Idaho state school type of sins. State schools where your debts or the school loans are not that high. You're regular folk. Sin still sin. God still has an opinion about it. And he said to his disciples, Luke 17, verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come. But woe to him by whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Hmm. It's one of those moments. Jesus at his ripest. 
He doesn't say it'd be better if he were drowned. Or it wasn't, he'd be better off dead. Jesus is coming up with a word picture. Let's tie something really heavy, not to his leg, because that would be kind of comfortable. Drowning that way, that would be the nice way to do somebody in drowning. Let's tie it to his neck. Let's drag him to the bottom of the sea with a big rock. You say, okay, maybe Jesus has a... Either he's really brutal, or he has a really negative view of sin. And in this case, causing someone else to sin. Because that's the world... Look at the world of wickedness. The world of wickedness are those who cause sin, the tempters. Those who do sin, that's the rest of us. And those people who get forgiven of sin. Your relationship to sin is either being caused to do it, doing it, or getting forgiven. Going into sin, being in sin, getting out of sin. That's the world of wickedness. Simple, you know, know, there's some other things you could probably attach to that or other steps, but for the sake of a sermon uh, and holding things together, and I have those things, A, B, and C. Threats going into sin, threats in sin, threats getting out of sin. Why did I say threats? Woe to him by whom they come. God is threatening someone who causes sin. It says in the book of James that we are tempted when we're lured and enticed by our own desires. Your sin, you're responsible for. That's point B. The threat in sin. We have a situation of being in sin that will be judged. I did it. The guy who tempted me to do it is going to be punished as well. There's a threat to him. There's a threat to you. The threat to you is uh, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. You're supposed to go after people who are in sin. There's the, the causer of sin. There is the doer of sin. And then there is the person, the getting out of sin procedure. Has any a temptation come to you by a friend, some guy or girl or friend of yours, no, you know, that is kind of wobbly in their own moral circumstance and, and so they want to have you join in on their sinfulness? Have you ever been tempted where it's really a temptation? Have you ever sinned for that reason? There's two of you involved, at least. Being enticed by your own desires. There's being the sinner yourself. He who entices. Sometimes you just entice yourself. You just, you know, you're window shopping for sin. Like wandering through the mall of sin. Looking for something at Payless that you can afford. Something that you will not uh, really have to be that sorry for. But there's threats that God gives to those who cause sin. There's threats to those who are sinners. And there's threats regarding getting out of sin. Because it says, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, this is what Jesus is feeling his oats in this section. You go all the way back to chapter 15 in Luke. Ooh. 
He starts in 15 with the lost sheep, then the prodigal son, and uh, then the unrighteous steward, where the guy um, cheats his master and then gets complimented. Just weird things that Jesus is throwing really strange ethical demands. Then he has some teaching on divorce and remarriage. Then he has the rich man and Lazarus. And that brings you up to the end of chapter 16. Some real difficult teaching. And then he lands on this one and says, you know, write about Apology 3 from your friend who sinned against you. Write about Apology 3. You've got a different opinion than Jesus. Sorry. I'm not forgiving you. I've got a feeling you've got a problem. Not just sitting against me, but repeatedly sitting against me. And so the Lord says, if he turns to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive him. Okay, something's getting... Our relationship to wickedness, we've just suddenly realized, is not the same as the Lord's. We can go, okay, yeah, I don't think I should hold a bottle of vodka under some alcoholic's nose and say, why don't you get drunk? You know, causing them to sin. I probably shouldn't do that. And, you know, I'm very grateful for the grace of God when I am in sin that he will forgive me if someone rebukes me. We do feel we have the right to sin, but we know we've got to get out of it. But this is where... Like in the old westerns, we've talked, you know that verse about uh, the other one people don't like? Um, it's amazing how much we don't like what Jesus says. We like maybe the paintings, the pictures of him, because he looks really nice. But you read his stuff, and you're going, I don't know if I want to, I think I'll be a Buddhist. I, I'm going to quit this, because this is, uh, I, was, I didn't sign up for this. When he says, if anyone strikes you on one cheek, you turn him again the other. And every Western has some you know, young pastor who struggles with that verse. And then his way of struggling with it is he lets the guy hit him on the other cheek and then he says something like, after that Jesus doesn't say anything. Then he gets into a big fight in the bar. That's how we view it. That's too much, Lord. Don't even let me think about the, the actual meaning of what you said so that I would be faithful to it all the way, we look at the numbers and go, seven times, dang it! Seven times! I must forgive him! <coughs> I'll let you know about all the other just desperately awkward parables Jesus is telling you in the two previous chapters. And then he lands on this and says, you know, forgive those guys every time. Every single time. Up to seven times that they turn to you when you know that they're lying. You just know it. So what do the apostles say? Verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Oh, isn't that what you always do? Uh, Lord, I'm not doing anything that you told me. So I think I'll turn this problem into your problem where I will start to doubt whether Christianity is even true. If I told you to increase my faith so I could forgive the guy seven times, 
You didn't do it. What kind of God is that? It's amazing that, that we put these things back on him. Well, the Lord's not... The Lord's had his oatmeal that morning. And he's not having any of it. And the Lord said, If you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you could say to the sycamine tree, be rooted up and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You could move heaven and earth, folks, if you had the smallest amount of faith. Let's just suggest to you, not taking that verse out of context, put it back in there. They said, Lord, increase our faith. He said, it doesn't matter how big your faith is. This ain't about faith, folks. What is it about? Will any one of you, verse 7, who has a servant plowing and keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and gird yourself and serve me till I eat and drink and afterward you shall eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that is commanded you, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So quit your whining about the lack of faith. Quit your whining about God not answering your prayers because God didn't, God didn't give me the forgiveness to give that person. God is saying, I told you to forgive that person every single time. Do you understand what a command is? When you give commands, we all understand it with our children, right? It's amazing, people who have really loose, and I don't mean to offend any of the feminists out there, but by the breathing, I think, offends feminists, but everybody likes to have everything, you know, contribute to their ease of life until they're in charge of someone. It was a great idea for Jesus to say, which one of you, if he had a servant coming in from the field, automatically rushes to help the servant do everything the servant needs to do. And may, hey, let me get dinner for you. That's not the nature of servants. You don't serve them. They serve you. Jesus wants them to understand he's given them a command, not a description. That if only then God came through for you, You'd be able to do it. Lord, if only my faith were stronger. Increase my faith. What happens when you give a command and the person has all sorts of, well, I, I gave the illustration on the side, you get told to do the dishes, and you say, well, I don't know where the soap is. And mother looks at son, who's generally about 13 when this little conversation occurs. I don't know where the soap is. Have you checked under the sink? It's a short distance. Yeah, you checked under the sink. But I, I don't really know how to do dishes. Well, hmm. What, what do you think should be happening in that, you know, skull full of mush that you're talking to? Is it maybe since they're in charge and they told me to do this, if I'm told to do this, I should learn how to do this. 
I should go find out where the soap is. I better get some lessons on how to wash dishes. Our moral life, wickedness in the world, is not merely you and the sin proper. That's a problem. You did this sin, say it was lust or it was uh, punching someone in the face or murder or something, and you're supposed to get out of the sin. That's one moral task, but you're also not supposed to live in such a way that it causes people to sin, and you're also not to live in such a way that it restricts people from getting out of sin. In other words, your inability to forgive people. When you think about just being in sin, oh yeah, we love grace. Protestants, most of you are Protestants, love the idea of faith alone and grace alone and God just forgiving. When you think only as grace, your life is just gifts all the time. And gifts, you think God's got to constantly bribe you. Ever Ever think of that as a parent, that you end up bribing your children constantly with presents? If I just keep piling on the grace, the gift, the extra, the this, the that, they might not notice that I gave them a command. Or they might even think about doing it. If I convince them to be... No, they are doing the command, not because you are beloved, but because they were told. When you have done all that is commanded you, say, we are unworthy servants. So when you're done forgiving everybody, even those rapscallions who ask you seven times in the same day with the same sin, man, I'm really sorry about that. Really, really this time. You have to forgive them. Now, We don't like that. We think, remember a few weeks ago I talked about calling black, white, good, evil, things like that, where we have ways of talking about the evil we do as if they were virtues. And sometimes unforgiveness is one of the key things that looks to your own eyes like you're being virtuous. Right? Because you're standing for goodness, right? They treated you poorly. So you have a dim view of them. You don't like them. That's virtuous, right? Now, you know that that's probably, you're saying to yourself, I don't know where this sermon's going, but I suspect that isn't virtuous. Since God requires forgiveness. Well, you see it on the cross, right? Jesus Christ hung on a cross. Probably, have you ever been accused of doing something you didn't do? I mean, that, that would be the worst kind of sin against you, right? Not only did they hurt you, the mighty you, but they hurt you entirely unsubstantiated claims of your guilt about something. Think about being Jesus Christ. You are, not just think you're God, you are God. Not just think you're righteous, you are righteous. Not just get insulted, but have nails driven through your forearms. And then mocked. And then he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There you go. 
our Christ an example for us. We know that our holding on to supposedly virtue in our unforgiveness is a forbidden Christian concept. God himself will not. He grants mercy. He forgives. And when he does judge, it's because, guess what? He is the judge. He is the God of the universe. And when I judge and when I hold people to their sins, especially when they're already forgiven by God, what if, they, what if it's your spouse, that husband of yours? Because, you know, it's just, we, we're stupid just by being, getting up in the morning. And we always do something, didn't think, said something to the old lady. She's feeling a little bit, you know, nobody cherishes her quite as much as she needs to be cherished. And so he says something. Your world comes to an end. His world comes to an end. He realizes what he did. He takes it to the Lord and says, Lord, I, I was inconsiderate of my wife. Please forgive me. And God, wonderful God that he is, forgives you. So you go to your wife and you say, honey, I, I know I sinned against you and you forgave, God forgave me for it. I, I wanted to let you know. And, and the, the lips get a little tight. You know how chick lips get a little tight? It's fine. It's okay. You know, because men are bastards. And women begin with a B as well. But uh, it's, it's really, really, really hard. Even though God, the Lord of heaven and earth, he who made it all, who cares for most about how it goes, who will judge every man according to that which he has done, whether it be good or evil, in absolute justice, and he sent his son Jesus Christ to earth to die so that your husband would be forgiven for that stupid remark. But your lips are getting tight. Because he doesn't understand that I'm a princess of my own little world, anyway. Well, that story could be written any sort of way. It's comedy, no matter how you write it. But it's wickedness in the Christian life. Now, that's, we say, okay, all right. So he. So he requires us to forgive seven times, which is just unthinkable. Just like turning the other cheek is unthinkable. But okay, Jesus is in charge. I, I guess I'll do it. A little while later, one of Jesus' you know, suck-up type disciples, St. Peter, Matthew 18. Now we know this is a little bit later because right before, I gave you a few references, right before... Um, this situation in Matthew 18 is the little children coming to Christ and that is just after the situation where he's instructed the disciples to forgive seven times. And then Peter says, Matthew 18, 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Doesn't that sound sucky up, you know, that right there? You know, well, hey, fellow disciples, I'll show you I got one of the answers right. I'll just introduce the problem again, show that I hold the same standards as our Lord. Should I forgive him as many seven times? It seems like I've heard that number before. 
Because some of you are such Pharisees, you could make it to seven. You could, you could reach that point. You could, the, the tight lips, yes, honey, I forgive you. I really do forgive you. Jesus said to him, I, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven, neener, neener, which is 490. Because you were ready for fake forgiveness, because you're, you're not only part of wickedness, you're a hypocrite. You want to look like you're doing all the right things. Why do people, why do we want our little kids to lie when they say they're sorry? Say you're sorry. They're not sorry. Don't make them lie. You're training little kids to be, you know, dishonest about their sins. You should talk to them about why they're not sorry. But making them say they're sorry? Because we do that too. It's okay. Somebody comes up to you. You didn't, weren't prepared. You're standing out on the street by a coffee house because that's all we do in Moscow is stand out on the street outside of a coffee shop. Somebody comes up to you and says, says hey man, I'm really sorry. I, I blew you off last night. I didn't, I didn't mean to treat you that way. And you weren't ready. You weren't ready for that. You weren't ready for that sudden apology. And so what do you do? You stammer out the polite forgiveness, knowing in your heart that you don't. Now, this is, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you know this, not because you have not heard of forgiveness before, but I don't think I've known enough Christians. I've talked to enough Christians. I've counseled Christians. And I've, one of the basic problems. It's, it's a basic problem, unforgiveness. And our religion is based on forgiveness, right? Jesus, death, faith, get forgiven. Forgiveness of sins, life eternal, you, you know the drill. And Christians don't forgive one another. But Christians certainly say they forgive you. Oh, I, oh yeah, yeah, I forgave him. But I don't really think I could ever forget. <laughs> I don't care if you forget either, but that just proved that you didn't forget either. Jesus says, let's just make, in case say you don't think that you're something like seven times, yeah, a, a, a really manly, self-deceived hypocrite can reach it to seven, but I'd like to see you reach 490. Every time, one day, say he's one of those irritating guys that stands at your shoulder, punches you in your shoulder, and it says, hey, sorry, man. <laughs> and you got to go, number one. <laughs> and you are going to imagine the bruise on your arm at the end of 490 slugs in a day where you kindly turned to him and said, you're forgiven. <laughs> now, let's just imagine you have a, a sense of yourself that you think you could be that disingenuous. You could lie at that level. Or you could say, I forgive you. It doesn't actually tell you to say, you're supposed to forgive him. It doesn't say, you must say, I forgive you. It does say that about his apology, which he makes it sound like Jesus is expecting it to be insincere. If he turns to you and says, I repent, 
He doesn't then say, you must say, I forgive you. It says, you must forgive him. Let him be a hypocrite. Now in this situation in Matthew 18, because I have mercy on your souls, I just cut out all that middle part in Matthew 18 where he tells the story of the unrighteous servant who was forgiven by his master for his debt and did not forgive his fellow servant who had a much smaller debt to him. It's a very obvious illustration. We know the parable. Go back and read it between verses 23 and 34. But the last line, after he's done with the story, is verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus Christ is not designing the same religion for you that you were busy designing. Where you get to be forgiven and other people respect your space and your brokenness. Whatever other words you want to use. Your boundaries. They didn't respect my boundaries. If you use that phrase at any time in the last two years, they didn't respect my boundaries. Please come by the house this afternoon. I'll hit you with a two-by-four. Because I want to hit you with a two-by-four. Not sinfully. I wouldn't be doing it sinfully at all. It would just be for the good of the civilization. Because people like you need to be hit with something blunt. And you've got to say, I'm ready to forgive Evan. If he says he's sorry for that remark in the... Ch I'm not sorry. But here's it adds this new thing. It says, not just you've got to forgive. Jesus, let me get my spade out. I'm going to dig this a little deeper for you. From the heart. Jesus didn't hang on the cross and say, Father, forgive them superficially. Just because it needed to be said. Because it cleared the air. It made a lot of everybody feel they could go home and say, well, he said he forgave me. And they know you didn't. And you know you didn't. But it's on record. People heard it. From the heart. 490 times from the heart. Now we're not just, this is the problem. We knew that maybe a Pharisee could make it to seven. And maybe you're an A-type person who then first go out and design an app for your phone that would keep track of the number of apologies. You didn't have to keep counting anyway. And so that at little when you hit 491, it would go bing, and, and your phone would tell you you can stop forgiving the guy now until the next day starts. There are people who would figure out a way to mathematically live this way. You get a suspicion that when he goes 70 times 7, he's just trying to give you a word like gazillions. When you say, yo, myriads upon myriads. 70 times 7. A lot. And in case you're clueless, from the heart. Now, when it's from the heart, 
That's our first step. The desire for it to be from the heart, not to be the mathematical obedience. Because God wants obedience. He wants you to do this. First it was seven, that was 70 times seven, but you had to do it. And you have to do it because you were told to do it. And you had better go learn how to wash dishes and find the soap yourself. You better say, I'm about this, Lord, because you just told me that I'm not allowed to have this kind of mathematical avoidance of forgiveness. I have got to be forgiving from my very nature. We uh, have to. Matthew 6, 9. You recognize this. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now that chorus has been sung probably this morning, the world round. That, you almost felt the temptation as I read it, to chime in, because some of you were raised in a real church. He is saying the Our Father, of the Paternoster. Let's say it together with him. And the hypocrisy rolls down like streams, shaken down, running over. We are full of it. Because we get there, Lord, forgive us, just like we forgive those who have hurt our feelings. The world is filled. My father has a long-term Christian ministry business talking to people about bitterness. Why is that? Because nobody forgives anybody. Nobody. It seems nobody forgives anybody, let alone seven times in a day, let alone 490 times in a day, let alone from the heart they don't forgive. And we then, in our prayer of prayers, that we hold up to God, that Jesus taught us to pray, that every church, even the apostate high church liturgical ones, are all chanting this back before God, Father, forgive us as we have forgiven others. Do you realize what the claim is there? We are asking God, in his mercy to us, to imitate us. Most of us realize the Christian life is one where we imitate God. We try to see him as he is, we follow his teachings, we follow through. Yeah, we imitate, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But here the Lord says, you know, this is the way this deal works. You're supposed to do what I told you in forgiveness. And I will, I will forgive you in accordance with your forgiveness. Not in accordance with your good deeds. He's not forgiving you for this measuring how good you are. It's measuring what you think of forgiveness. It's the exact same thing. Verse 14, for if you forgive men their trespasses, now this is what's interesting, Lord's Prayer, Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's shaped differently in some translations, there's that extra phrase, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever, amen. It depends on your view of which text 
you're using, because some texts have that, some don't, but no matter what, the next verse is Jesus talking about that one point in his prayer. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father also will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. In case you were wondering if Evan was right in saying this, Jesus says it. And he says, you know that kind of big prayer that I told you how to pray? Well, I could have talked about the phrase, hallowed be thy name. No, I'm going to talk about the one thing we don't seem to do. It's like we don't like forgiveness. We just like us being forgiven. We don't like forgiveness. We don't like the wonder of mercy. The wonder of giving someone grace or not holding something against somebody. We don't under even understand that. We just like somebody else not holding anything against us. Where we would be in trouble. Where we would be hurt. It has to be from the heart. We have to recognize when we're trying to forgive verbally, I forgive you, man, it should matter to you. It should matter to you for this reason. Because you want God, you are basically saying, this is how I want my sins treated by God. You ever felt not forgiven when you ask God for forgiveness? And you'd have to promise yourself that your theology says, no, he will. He, no, no, he really will. He really will forgive my sins. Maybe he won't. Maybe he won't because your roommate ticked you off. And you won't forgive. Because Lord knows it was you that was sinned against. Your sins were only against the living God. Their sins were against you. Someone mightier than the living God. In your mind. If it's not happening, it's not because forgiveness doesn't work. It's because you don't know what forgiveness is. You don't know what the thing is you're valuing. You're viewing forgiveness as a get-out-of-jail-free moment. Oh, so I have to pay that bill, huh? But you're going to pay it for me? Okay, cool. But we don't understand when someone owes us money. Now... There's a reason the heart has to be there. Some Christians argue over whether you can forgive someone who hasn't asked for forgiveness. Well, I think that person who asks that question, unless it's philosophically asked, but if someone says, I don't think you can really forgive somebody if they don't ask for forgiveness. I don't think that person can forgive somebody if they do. I don't think they have the wherewithal. Because their heart isn't in the place. Now you say, when someone says heart, there's, it's kind of amorphous. It's kind of dodgy. How do we know what we're talking about? 
I have this last passage here to help you out. This is Matthew 6, 19, a little later in the chapter. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's why we don't forgive. My stuff matters to me. You touched my stuff. You messed with my stuff. I was uh, at that family reunion a few weeks ago, in Nebraska, and one of my cousins that I've known since, well, since I was little, remembers me from, they were like probably maybe seven or eight, and they were visiting us, and I was about 12 or 13. I don't know how old I was, pretty young, early teen, but I was a truculent adolescent. And all they remember from me, well, well, they remember my siblings and how nice they were and how, you know, and then they remembered me. And the only thing I said to them on their visit was, don't touch my stuff. I don't remember the moment. They remembered it. Don't touch my stuff. And you're going through life with your stuff. And I'm using stuff here broadly because some of you say, you know, I'm more, a little more bohemian. I, I could live without anything. I, could, I eat whole grains. <laughs> you know, the two by four, I really, I have a list of people I'd like to have a two by four for. And that's one of them, but that gets me off the track. You, you might have all sorts of different kinds of stuff. For me as a teenager, it was probably my radio. Or my records. Don't touch my records, man. Remember those days, back in the records days? Some of you are old enough for records. Someone would pull an album out of the sleeve. And maybe you're like, really, Roy, I don't know if you were that kind of person, because Roy was a disc jockey. He was that kind of person. And their thumb would go on the, just go the groove. They, gra- they wouldn't grab it like this. Like it was, you know, an icon of Jesus. <laughs> Putting your Grateful Dead album on there. And, but they put their thumb right in the middle of the groove. All that body grease going into the thing and it's going to be there forever. Don't touch my stuff. Your stuff, your treasures, and I know you really, really look good. I know, what was the line out of Zoolander? Ridiculously good looking. And somebody didn't treat you as if you were. And I know you're smart. Someone made fun of you. Didn't applaud loud enough when you played your song you wrote down at Bootsers during open mic. They didn't say nice things. Your stuff. And just because you are the best looking person I have ever met, and smarter than me by far, and have a lot of money, and a lot of talent too, those things don't make your treasure on earth. So what, what was you saying now? Having, you're waking up in the morning and looking in the mirror and going, wow, that's a good looking person. That's not a problem. It's where your treasure is. Jesus got up in the morning and looked in the mirror, if you had a mirror, and said, hmm, there's God. Okay, that... 
It's not a problem to realize you're the smartest, best-looking, richest person you know. The problem is whether you treasure being the smartest, best-looking person you know, and you can find out by whether or not you can ever forgive people's insults against your stuff. Did they touch your stuff? If you lay those up, if you're concerned about it over much, if your beauty, if your smarts, if your talent, if your stuff becomes the thing that other people have to respect and reverence because you are the God in your universe and you are the one who will forgive and probably not forgive. Help you get to that heart. Keep you from being a citizen of wickedness. Because that's, remember, there are people who cause sin, there are people who do sin, and there are people who won't let people out of sin. They just, they are a part of the cause of the wickedness in the world. How they treat people who have sin. They will not forgive. They're part of wickedness. Mentally, get rid of your stuff. I'm not a communist. I'm not saying everybody's got to give up everything. Keep your stuff, but get rid of your stuff. Stop treasuring your stuff. Your stuff doesn't matter. The thumb on your record, it doesn't matter. For heaven's sake, who do you think you are? For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We have to, in this passage, understand obedience. Because Christians have found the Lord. Because to become a Christian, you had to come to Christ to go, Jesus is Lord. That's what you have to do. And Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, and you do not do the things that I say? And here in this passage, he said, you know, I told you to do stuff, shut up. Why don't you just say, we've only done that which is our duty. Why don't you say, I'm going to figure out, Lord, because you're Lord, and I know this little lack of forgiveness on my part is unacceptable. One, I confess it. One, I take my disobedience to you and take it to you and say, Lord, I am sorry. You told me to forgive, and I didn't forgive. And I repeatedly don't forgive. I will straighten this out. Thank you for your forgiveness, but I'm going to start laying up treasure where it belongs. So my heart won't be about my stuff. I won't have stuff that is so valuable to me that other people can sin against me. Really, the sins are only against God in the first place. The only thing you're trotting around with is your stuff and your standards regarding your stuff. It's a separate moral question. It's not even the sin part that they're guilty of. They, remember, they could be forgiven by God and walk in the joy of the Lord the rest of their life, and you never forgive them. Your forgiveness is not necessary. It's only necessary for you. Because it's your little world of your stuff and your demands and their offense against it. You better get it right. He is Lord. You understand obedience. You better find where your heart is. Confess that you didn't find it earlier. But if you, don't, if you struggle with forgiveness, if you struggle with forgiveness, you're in disobedience, you're not treating Christ as Lord, you're not going to get forgiven yourself, you better get it worked out. Find where your treasure is and start stacking up 
You say, oh, I really don't actually be in the Word. I should read more. We know what we're really after. What's your treasure? What you stack up? What you're after? That will turn out whether or not people are able to sit against you. Remember, we're trying to become like Christ. We're also trying to give Christ the opportunity to be like us. Treats us like we've treated others. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. Very grateful. In your son's name, amen.